And now, Chapter 10, from Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, The Voyage. That night we were in a great bustle getting things stowed in their place, and boatfuls of the squire's friends, Mr. Blandley and the like, coming off to wish him a good voyage and a safe return. We never had a night at the Admiral Benbow when I had half the work, and I was dog-tired when, a little before dawn, the boatswain sounded his pipe and the crew began to man the capstan bars. I might have been twice as weary, yet I would not have left the deck. All was so new and interesting to me. The brief commands, the shrill note of the whistle, the men bustling to their places in the glimmer of the ship's lanterns. "'Now, barbecue, tip us a stave!' cried one voice. "'The old one!' cried another. "'Aye, aye, mates!' said Long John, who was standing by, with his crutch under his arm, and at once broke out in the air, and words I knew so well. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, and then the whole crew bore chorus. Yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum! And at the third, ho, drove the bars before them with a will. Even at that exciting moment, it carried me back to the old Admiral Benbow, in a second, and I seemed to hear the voice of the captain piping in the chorus. But soon the anchor was shored up, soon it was hanging dripping at the bows, and soon the sails began to draw, and the land and shipping to flit by on either side. And before I could lie down to snatch an hour of slumber, the Hispaniola had begun her voyage to the Isle of Treasure. I am not going to relate that voyage in detail. It was fairly prosperous. The ship proved to be a good ship. The crew were capable seamen, and the captain thoroughly understood his business. But before we came the length of Treasure Island, two or three things had happened, which do require to be known. Mr. Arrow, first of all, turned out even worse than the captain had feared. He had no command among the men, and people did what they pleased with him. But that was by no means the worst of it, for after a day or two at sea, he began to appear on deck with hazy eye, red cheeks, stuttering tongue, and other marks of drunkenness. Time after time he was ordered below in disgrace. Sometimes he fell and cut himself. Sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side of the companion. Sometimes for a day or two he would be almost sober and attend to his work at least passably. In the meantime, we could never make out where he got drunk. That was the ship's mystery. Watch him as we pleased, we could do nothing to solve it, and when we asked him to his face, he would only laugh if he were drunk and if he were sober, deny solemnly that he ever tasted anything but water. He was not only useless as an officer and a bad influence amongst the men, but it was plain at this rate he must soon kill himself outright, so nobody was much surprised nor very sorry when one dark night, with a head sea, he disappeared entirely and was seen no more. Overboard, said the captain. Well, gentlemen, that saves the trouble of putting him in irons. But there we were, without a mate, and it was necessary, of course, to advance one of the men. The boatswain, Job Anderson, was the likeliest man aboard, and though he kept his old title, he served in a way as mate. Mr. Trelawney had followed the sea, and his knowledge made him very useful, for he often took a watch himself in easy weather. And the coxswain, Israel Hands, was a careful, wily, old, experienced seaman who could be trusted at a pinch with almost anything. He was a great confidant of Long John Silver, 
and so the mention of his name leads me on to speak of our ship's cook, Barbecue, as the men called him. Aboard ship he carried his crutch by a lanyard round his neck, to have both hands as free as possible. It was something to see him wedge the foot of the crutch against a bulkhead, and propped against it, yielding to every movement of the ship, get on with his cooking like someone safe ashore. Still more strange was it to see him in the heaviest of weather cross the deck. He had a line or two rigged up to help him across the widest spaces. Long John's earrings, they were called, and he would hand himself from one place to another, now using the crutch, now trailing it alongside by the lanyard, as quickly as another man could walk. Yet some of the men who had sailed with him before expressed their pity to see him so reduced. He's no common man, Barbecue, said the coxswain to me. He had a good schooling in his young days, and can speak like a book when so minded, and brave. A lion's nothing alongside of Long John. I've seen him grapple four and knock their heads together, him unarmed. All the crew respected and even obeyed him. He had a way of talking to each and doing everybody some particular service. To me he was unweariedly kind, and always glad to see me in the galley, which he kept as clean as a new pin, the dishes hanging up burnished, and his parrot in a cage in one corner. "'Come away, Hawkins,' he would say. "'Come and have a yarn with John. Nobody more welcome than yourself, my son. Sit you down and hear the news. Here's Captain Flit. I calls my parrot Captain Flit, after the famous buccaneer. Here's Captain Flit, predicting success to our voyage. Wasn't you, Captain?' And the parrot would say, with great rapidity, "'Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! till you wondered that it was not out of breath, or till John threw his handkerchief over the cage. "'Now that bird,' he would say, "'is maybe two hundred years old, Hawkins. They live forever, mostly, and if anybody's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. She sailed with England, the great Captain England, the pirate.' She's been at Madagascar, and at Malabar, and Suriname, and Providence, and Portobello. She was at the fishing up of the wrecked plate ships. And that was where she learned pieces of eight. And little wonder, 350,000 of them. Hawkins, she was at the boarding of the Viceroy of the Indies out of Goa, she was. And to look at her, you'd think she was a baby. But you smelt powder, didn't you, Captain? "'Stand by to go about!' the parrot would scream. "'Ah, she's a handsome craft, she is,' the cook would say, and give her sugar from his pocket, and then the bird would peck at the bars and swear straight on, passing belief for wickedness. "'There,' John would add, "'you can't touch pitch and not be mucked, lad. "'Hear this poor old innocent bird of mine swearing blue fire, and none the wiser, you might lay to that. "'She would swear the same, in a manner of speaking, before chaplain.' and John would touch his forelock with a solemn way he had that made me think he was the best of men. In the meantime, the squire and Captain Smollett were still on pretty distant terms with one another. The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. The captain, on his part, never spoke but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry, and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been wrong about the crew, and that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. In the meantime, the squire and Captain Smollett were still on pretty distant terms with one another. 
The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. The captain, on his part, never spoke but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry, and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been wrong about the crew, that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. As for the ship, he had taken a downright fancy to her. She'll lie a point nearer the wind than a man has a right to expect of his own married wife, sir. But, he would add, all I say is, we're not home again, and I don't like the cruise. The squire, at this, would turn away and march up and down the deck, chin in the air. A trifle more of that man, he would say, and I shall explode. We had some heavy weather, which only proved the qualities of the Hispaniola. Every man on board seemed well content, and they must have been hard to please if they had been otherwise, for it is my belief that there was never a ship's company so spoiled since Noah put to sea. Double grog was going on the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, as, for instance, if the squire heard it was any man's birthday, and always a barrel of apples standing broached at the waist for anyone to help himself that had a fancy. Never knew good come of it yet, the captain said to Dr. Livesey. Spoil forecastle hands, make devils, that's my belief. But good did come of the apple barrel, as you shall hear, for if it had not been for that, we should have had no note of warning, and might all have perished by the hand of treachery. And this was how that came about. We had run up the trades to get the wind of the island we were after. I'm not allowed to be more plain, and now we were running down for it with a bright lookout day and night. It was about the last day of our outward voyage by the largest computation. Sometime that night, or at latest before noon of the morrow, we should sight the Treasure Island. We were headed south-southwest, and had a steady breeze abeam and a quiet sea. The Hispaniola rolled steadily, dipping her bowsprit now and then with a whiff of spray. All was drawing alow and aloft. Everyone was in the bravest spirits because we were now so near an end of the first part of our adventure. Now, just after sundown, when all my work was over, and I was on my way to my berth, it occurred to me that I should like an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all forward looking out for the island. The man at the helm was watching the luff of the sail and whistling away gently to himself. And that was the only sound excepting a swish of the sea against the bows and around the sides of the ship. He and I got bodily into the apple barrel and found there was scarce an apple left. But sitting down there in the dark, what with the sound of the waters and the rocking movement of the ship, I had either fallen asleep or was on the point of doing so, when a heavy man sat down with rather a clash close by. The barrel shook as he leaned his shoulders against it, and I was just about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, and before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there, trembling and listening, in the extreme of fear and curiosity. For from these dozen words, I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. Chapter 11 What I Heard in the Apple Barrel Oh, not I, said Silver. Flint was captain. I was quartermaster, along of my timber leg. The same broadside I lost my leg. Old Pew lost his deadlights. It was a master surgeon, him that amputated me, out of college and all, 
Latin by the bucket, and what not, but he was hanged like a dog, and sun-dried like the rest at Corso Castle. That was Robert's men, that was, and come of changing names to their ships, royal fortune and so on. Now what a ship was christened, so let her stay, I says. So it was with the Cassandra, as brought us all safe home from Malabar, after England took the viceroy of the Indies. So it was with the old walrus, Flint's old ship, as I've seen a muck with the red blood and fit to sink with gold. Ah! cried another voice, that of the youngest hand on board, and evidently full of admiration. He was the flower of the flock, was Flint. Davis was a man, too, by all accounts, said Silver. I never sailed along of him, first with England, then with Flint. That's my story. And now here on my own account, in a manner of speaking, I laid by nine hundred safe from England, and two thousand after Flint. That ain't bad for a man before the mast. All safe in the bank. Tain't earning now. It's saving, does it? You may lay to that. Where's all England's men now? I dunno. Where's Flint's? Why, most of them right here aboard, and glad to get the duff. Been begging before that. Some on em. Old Pew, as had lost his sight, and might have thought shame, spends twelve hundred pounds in a year, like a lord in Parliament. Where is he now? Well, he's dead now, and under hatches. But for two years before that, shiver my timbers, the man was starving. He begged, and he stole, and he cut throats, and starved at that, by the powers. Well, it ain't much use, after all, said the young seaman. Tain't much use for fools, you may lay to it. That nor nothing, cried Silver. But now, you look here. You're young, you are, but you're as smart as paint. I see that when I set my eyes on you, and I'll talk to you like a man. You may imagine how I felt when I heard this abominable old rogue addressing another in the very same words of flattery as he had used to myself. I think, if I'd been able, that I would have killed him to the barrel. Meantime, he ran on, little supposing he was overheard. Here it is about gentlemen of fortune. They lives rough, and they risk swinging. But they eat and drink like fighting cocks. And when a cruise is done, why, it's hundreds of pounds, instead of hundreds of farthings in their pockets. Now the most goes for rum and a good fling, and to see again in their shirts. But that's not the course I lay. I puts it all away, some here, some there, and none too much anywhere, by reason of suspicion. I'm fifty, mark you. One back from this cruise. I set up gentlemen in earnest. Time enough, too, says you. Ah, but I've lived easy in the meantime. Never denied myself and nothing my heart desires, and slept soft and ate dainty all my days, but when at sea. And how did I begin? Before the mast, like you. Well, said the other, but all other money's gone now, ain't it? You daren't show face in Bristol after this. "'Why, where might you suppose it was?' asked Silver derisively. "'At Bristol, in banks and places,' answered his companion. "'It were,' said Long John. "'It were when we weighed anchor. "'But my old missus has it all by now, "'and the spyglass is sold, lease and goodwill and rigging, "'and the old girl's off to meet me. "'I would tell you where, for I trust you, "'but it'd make, but it'd make jealousy among the mates.' "'And can you trust your missus?' asked the other. "'Gentlemen of fortune, 
returned the cook, usually trusts little among themselves, and right they are. You may lay to it. But I've a way with me, I have. When a mate brings a slip on his cable, one as knows me, I mean, it won't be in the same world with old John. There was some that feared a pew, and some that was feared a flint, but flint his own self was feared of me. Feared he was, and proud. They was the roughest crew afloat, was Flint's. The devil himself would have been feared to go to sea with them. Well, now, I tell you, I'm not a boating man, and you've seen yourself how easy I keep company. But when I was quartermaster, lambs wasn't the word for Flint's old buccaneers. Ah, you may be sure of yourself, an old John ship. Well, I tell you now, replied the lad. I didn't half a quarter like a job till I had this talk with you, John. But there's my hand on it now. And a brave lad you were, and smart too, answered Silver, shaking hands so heartily that all the barrels shook. And a finer figurehead for a gentleman of fortune I never clapped my eyes on. By this time I'd begun to understand the meaning of their terms. By a gentleman of fortune, they plainly meant neither more nor less than a common pirate and the little scene that I had overheard was the last act in the corruption of one of the honest hands, perhaps of the last one left aboard. But on this point I was soon to be relieved, for Silver giving a little whistle, a third man strolled up and sat down by the party. "'Dick, you're square,' said Silver. "'Oh, I know Dick was square,' returned the voice of the coxswain, Israel Hands. "'He is no fool, is Dick?' And he turned his quid and spat. But look here, he went on. Here's what I want to know, Barbecue. How long are we going to stand off and on like a blessed bumboat? I've had almost enough of Captain Smollett. He's hazed me long enough, by thunder. I want to go into that cabin, I do. I want their pickles and wines in that. Israel, said Silver, your head ain't much account, nor ever was. But you're able to hear, I reckon. Leastways, your ears is big enough. Now here's what I say. You'll berth forward, and you'll live hard, and you'll speak soft, and you'll keep sober till I give the word, and you may lay to that, son. Well, I don't say no, do I? growled the coxswain. What I say is when. That's what I say. When? By the powers, cried Silver. Well, now, if you want to know, I'll tell you when. The last moment I can manage, and that's when. Here's a first-rate seaman, Captain Smollett, sails the blessed ship for us. Here's the squire and doctor with a map and such. I don't know where it is, do I? No more do you, says you. Well, then I mean this squire and doctor shall find the stuff and help us to get it aboard by the powers. Then we'll see. If I was sure of you all, sons of double Dutchmen, I'd have Captain Smollett navigate us halfway back again before I struck. "'Why, we're all seamen aboard here, I should think,' said the lad, Dick. "'We're all forecastle hands, you mean,' snapped Silver. "'We can steer a course, but who's to set one? "'That's what all you gentlemen split on, first and last. "'If I had my way, I'd have Captain Smollett work us back into the trades, at least. "'Then we'd have no blessed miscalculations and a spoonful of water a day. "'But I know the sort you are. I'll finish with him at the island.' and soon's the blunt on board, and a pity it is. But you're never happy till you're drunk. Split my sides, I've a sick heart to sail with the likes of you. 
Easy all, Long John, cried Israel. Who's a crossin' of you? Why, how many tall ships think ye have I seen laid aboard? And how many brisk lads drying in the sun at execution dock? cried Silver. And all for this same hurry and hurry and hurry. You hear me? I seen a thing or two at sea, I have. If you would only lay your course and a pint to windward, you'd ride in carriages, you would. But not you, I know you. You'll have your mouth full of rum tomorrow, and go hang. Everybody knowed you as a kind of chaplain, John, but there's others as could hand and steer as well as you, said Israel. They liked a bit of fun, they did. They wasn't so high and dry, no how, but they took their fling, like jolly companions every one. So, says Silver, well, and where are they now? Pew was that sort, and he died a beggar man. Flint was, and he died a rum at Savannah. Oh, they was a sweet crew, they was. Only, where are they? But, asked Dick, when we do lay him athwart, what are we to do with him anyhow? There's the man for me, cried the cook, admiringly. That's what I call business. Well, what would you think? Put him ashore like maroons? That would have been England's way. Or cut him down like that much pork. That would have been Flint's or Billy Bones's. Yeah, Billy was the man for that, said Israel. Dead men don't bite, says he. Well, he's dead now himself. He knows the long and short on it now. And if ever a rough hand come to port, it was Billy Bones. Right you are, said Silver, rough and ready. But mark you here. I'm an easy man. I'm quite the gentleman, says you. But this time it's serious. Duty's duty, mates. I give my vote. Death. When I'm in Parliament and riding in my coach, I don't want none of these sea lawyers in the cabin of coming home, unlooked for like the devil at prayers. Wait is what I say. But when the time comes, why, let her rip. John, cries the coxswain. You're the man. You'll say so, Israel, when you see, said Silver. Only one thing I claim. I claim Trelawney. I'll wring his calf's head off his body with these hands, Dick. He added, breaking off. You just jump up like a sweet lad and get me an apple to wet my pipe like. You may fancy the terror I was in. I should have leaped out and run for it if I'd found the strength but my limbs and heart alike misgave me. I heard Dick began to rise, and then someone seemingly stopped him, and the voice of Hans exclaimed, Oh, stow that. Don't you get sucking off that bilge, John. Let's have a go at the rum. Dick, said Silver, I trust you. I've got a gauge on the keg, mind. There's the key. You fill a pannikin and bring it up. Terrified as I was, I couldn't help thinking to myself that this must have been how Mr. Arrow got the strong waters that destroyed him. Dick was gone but a little while, and during his absence, Israel spoke straight on in the cook's ear. It was but a word or two that I could catch, and yet I gathered some important news, for besides other scraps that tended to be the same purpose, this whole clause was audible. Not another man of them would join. Hence, there were still faithful men on board, I knew at that point. When Dick returned, 
one after another of the trio took the pannikin and drank. One, to luck. Another was, here's to old Flint. And Silver himself sang in a kind of a song. Here's to ourselves and hold your luff. Plenty of prizes and plenty of duff. Just then a sort of brightness fell upon me in the barrel, and looking up, I found the moon had risen and was silvering the mizzen top and shining white on the luff of the foresail. And almost at the same time, the voice of the lookout shouted, Land ho! Chapter 12. A Council of War Here was a great rush of feet across the deck. I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin in the forecastle, and slipping in an instant outside my barrel, I dived behind the foresail, made a double towards the stern, and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in the rush for the weather bow. There all hands were already congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us we saw two low hills about a couple miles apart, and rising behind one of them a third and higher hill, whose peak was still buried in the fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw, almost in a dream, for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before. And then I heard the voice of Captain Smollett issuing orders. The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind, and now sailed a course that would just clear the island on the east. "'And now, men,' said the captain, when all was sheeted home, "'has any one of you ever seen that land ahead?' "'I have, sir,' said Silver. "'I've watered there with a trader when I was cook-in. "'The anchorage is on the south, behind an inlet, I fancy,' asked to the captain. "'Yes, sir. Skeleton Island, they calls it. "'It were a main place for pirates once.' and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. That hill to the north they calls the Foremast Hill. There are three hills in a row running southward. Four, main, and mizzen, sir. By the main, that's the big un, with the cloud on it. They usually calls the spyglass, by reason of a lookout they kept when they was in the anchorage cleaning, for there it was that they cleaned their ship, sir. Asking your pardon. I have a chart here, says Captain Smollett. See if that's the place. Long John's eyes burned in his head as he took the chart, but by the fresh look of the paper, I knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bones's chest, but an accurate copy, complete in all things, names and heights and soundings, with the single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp as must have been his annoyance, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. "'Yes, sir,' said he. "'This is the spot, to be sure, and very prettily drawn out.' "'Who might have done that, I wonder?' "'The pirates were too ignorant, I reckon.' "'Aye, here it is. Captain Kidd's Anchorage. Just the name my shipmate called it. There's a strong current runs along the south here, and then away northward up the west coast.' "'Right you was, sir,' says he, "'to haul your wind and keep the weather of the island. Leastways, if such was your intention, is to enter and careen, and there ain't no better place for that in these waters.' "'Thank you, my man,' says Captain Smollett. "'I'll ask you later on to give us a help. "'You may go.' "'I was surprised at the coolness "'with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, "'and I own I was half frightened "'when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. "'He did not know, to be sure, "'that I had overheard his counsel from the apple barrel, "'and yet I had by this time taken such a horror "'of his cruelty, duplicity, and power "'that I could scarce conceal a shudder 
when he laid a hand upon my arm. Ah, says he, this here is a sweet spot, this island, a sweet spot for a lad to get ashore on. You'll bathe, you'll climb trees, you'll hunt goats, you will, and you'll get aloft on them hills like a goat yourself. Why, it makes me young again. I was going to forget my timber leg, I was. It's a pleasant thing to be young and have ten toes, and you can lay to that. When you want to go a bit of exploring, you ask old John, and he'll put up a snack for you to take along. And clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled off forward and went below. Captain Smollett, the squire, and Dr. Livesey were talking together on the quarter-deck, and anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. While I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and being a slave to tobacco, had meant that I should fetch it. But as soon as I was near enough to speak, and not to be overheard, I broke immediately. Doctor, let me speak. Get the captain and squire down to the cabin, and then make some pretense to send for me. I have terrible news. The doctor changed countenance a little, but next moment he was master of himself. Thank you, Jim, he said quite loudly. That was all I wanted to know, as if he had asked me a question. And with that he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, and though none of them started or raised his voice, or so much as whistled, it was plain enough that Dr. Livesey had communicated my request, for the next thing that I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all hands were piped on deck. "'My lads,' said Captain Smollett, "'I've a word to say to you. This land that we have sighted is the place we've been sailing for. Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two, and as I was able to tell him that every man on board has done his duty— a low and aloft, as I never asked to see it done better. Why, he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you have grog served out for you to drink our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this. I think it handsome, and if you think as I do, you'll give a good sea cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed. That was a matter of course, but it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe these same men we're plotting for our blood. One more cheer for Captain Smollett, cried Long John, when the first had subsided. And this also was given with a will. On the top of that, the three gentlemen went below, and not long after, word was sent forward that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated round the table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them, and the doctor smoking away with his wig on his lap, and that, I knew, was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind on the ship's wake. "'Now, Hawkins,' said the squire, "'you have something to say. Speak up.' I did as I was bid, and as short as I could make it, told the whole details of Silver's conversation. Nobody interrupted me till I was done, nor did any one of the three of them make so much as a movement, but they kept their eyes upon my face from first to last. Jim, said Dr. Livesey, take a seat. And they made me sit down at table beside them, poured me out a glass of wine, filled my hands with raisins, and all three, one after the other, and each with a bow, drank to my good health and their service to me, for my luck and courage. 
"'Now, Captain,' said the squire, "'you were right, and I was wrong. I owe myself an ass, and I await your orders.' "'No more an ass than I, sir,' returned the captain. "'I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny but what showed signs before, for any man that had an eye in his head to see the mischief and take steps according. But this crew,' he added, "'beats me.' "'Captain,' said the doctor, "'with your permission, that Silver, a very remarkable man.' "'He'd look remarkably better hanging from a yard-arm, sir,' returned the captain. "'But this is talk. This don't lead to anything. "'I see three or four points, and with Mr. Trelawney's permission, I'll name them.' "'You, sir, are the captain. It is for you to speak,' says Mr. Trelawney grandly. First point began Mr. Smollett. We must go on, because we can't turn back. If I gave the word to go about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us, at least until this treasure's found. Third point, there are faithful hands. Now, sir, it's got to come to blows sooner or later, and what I propose is to take time by the forelock, as the saying is, and come to blows some fine day when they least expect it. We can count, I take it, on your own home servants, Mr. Trelawney. As upon myself, declared the squire. Three, reckoned the captain. Ourselves make seven, counting Hawkins here. Now, about the honest hands. Most likely Trelawney's own men, said the doctor. Those he picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire. Hands? was one of mine. I did think I could have trusted hands, added the captain. And to think that they're all Englishmen, broke out the squire. I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up. Well, gentlemen, said the captain, the best that I can say is not much. We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright lookout. It's trying on a man I know. It would be pleasanter to come to blows. "'but there's no help for it till we know our men. "'Lay to and whistle for a wind. "'That's my view.' "'Jim here,' said the doctor, "'can help us more than anyone. "'The men are not shy with him, "'and Jim is a noticing lad. "'Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you,' "'added the squire. "'I began to feel pretty desperate at this, "'for I felt altogether helpless, "'and yet, by an odd train of circumstances,' It was indeed through me that safety came. In the meantime, talk as we pleased, there were only seven out of the twenty-six on whom we knew we could rely. And out of these seven, one was a boy, so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. Chapter 13. How My Shore Adventure Began The appearance of the island when I came on deck next morning was altogether changed. Although the breeze had now utterly ceased, we had made a great deal of way through the night, and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low eastern coast. Gray-colored woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sand break in the lower lands, and by many tall trees of the pine family, outtopping the others, some singly, some in clumps, but the general coloring was uniform and sad. The hills ran up clear above the vegetation in spires of naked rock. All were strangely shaped, 
and Spyglass Mountain, which was by three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island, was likewise the strangest in configuration. Running up sheer from almost every side, and then suddenly cut off at the top like a pedestal to put a statue on. The Hispaniola was rolling scuppers under in the ocean swell. The booms were tearing at the blocks, the rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking, groaning, and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes, for though I was good enough sailor when there was way on, this standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm or so, above all in the morning, and on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this, perhaps it was the look of the island, with its gray, melancholy woods and wild stone spires, and the surf that we could both see and hear foaming and thundering on a steep beach. At least, although the sun shone bright and hot, and the shorebirds were fishing and crying all around us, and you would have thought anyone would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea. My heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots, and from the first look onward, I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. We had a dreary morning's work before us, and there was no sign of any wind, and the boats had to be got out and manned, and the ship warped three or four miles round the corner of the island and up the narrow passage to the haven behind Skeleton Island. I volunteered for one of the boats, where I had, of course, no business. The heat was sweltering, and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Anderson was in command of my boat, and instead of keeping the crew in order, he grumbled as loud as the worst. Well, he said with an oath, it's not forever. I thought this was a very bad sign, for up to that day the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business but the very sight of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in, Long John stood by the steersman and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the man in the chains got everywhere more water than was down in the chart, John never hesitated once. "'There's a strong scour with the ebb,' he said, "'and this here passage has been dug out, in a manner of speaking, with a spade.' We brought up just where the anchor was in the chart, about a third of a mile from each shore, the mainland on one side and Skeleton Island on the other. The bottom was clean sand. The plunge of our anchor sent up clouds of birds wheeling and crying over the woods, but in less than a minute they were down again and all was once more silent. The place was entirely landlocked, buried in woods, the trees coming right down to a high water mark. The shores mostly flat, and the hilltops standing round at a distance in a sort of amphitheater, one here, one there. Two little rivers, or rather two swamps, emptied out into this pond, as you might call it, and the foliage round that part of the shore had a kind of poisonous brightness. From the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade, for they were quite buried among the trees, and if it had not been for the chart and the companion, we might have been the first that had ever anchored there since the island rose out of the seas. There was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside. A peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage, a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree trunks. I observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing, like someone tasting a bad egg. I don't know about treasure, 
he said, but I'll stake my wig there's fever here. If the conduct of the men had been alarming in the boat, it became truly threatening when they had come aboard. They lay about the deck, growling together in talk. The slightest order was received with a black look, and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed. Even the honest hands must have caught the infection, for there was not one man aboard to mend another. Mutiny, it was plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. And it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger. Long John was hard at work going from group to group, spending himself in good advice, and as for example, no man could have shown better. He fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility. He was all smiles to everyone. If an order were given, John would be on his crutch in an instant with the cheeriest, Aye, aye, sir, in the world. And when there was nothing else to do, he kept up one song after another, as if to conceal the discontent of the rest. Of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon, this obvious anxiety on the part of Long John appeared the worst. We held a council in the cabin. Sir, said the captain, if I risk another order, the whole ship will come about our ears by the run. You see, sir, here it is. I get a rough answer, do I not? Well, if I speak back, pikes will be going in two shakes. If I don't, silver will see there's something under that, and the game's up. Now we've only one man to rely on. And who is that? asked the squire. Silver, sir, returned the captain. He's as anxious as you and I to smother things up. This is a tiff. He'd soon talk him out of it if he had the chance. And what I propose to do is to give him the chance. Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. If they all go, why, we'll fight the ship. If they none of them go, well then, we'll hold the cabin, and God defend the right. If some go, you mark my word, sir, Silver will bring him aboard again, as mild as lambs. It was so decided. Loaded pistols were served out to all the sure men. Hunter, Joyce, and Redruth were taken into our confidence and received the news with less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for. And then the captain went on deck and addressed the crew. My lads, said he, we've had a hot day and we're all tired and out of sorts. A turn ashore will hurt nobody. The boats are still in the water. You can take the gigs and as many as please may go ashore for the afternoon. I'll fire a gun half an hour before sundown. I believe the silly fellows must have thought they could break their shins over treasure as soon as they were landed, for they all came out of their sulks in a moment and gave a cheer that started the echo in a faraway hill and sent the birds once more flying and squalling round the anchorage. The captain was too bright to be in the way. He whipped out of sight in a moment, leaving Silver to arrange the party, and I fancy it was well he did so. Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much have pretended not to understand the situation. It was plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it. The honest hands, and I was soon to see it proved that they were such on board, must have been very stupid fellows. Or rather, I suppose the truth was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders. Only some more, and some less, and a few, being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any further. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. 
At last, however, the party was made up. Six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to disembark. Then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notions that contributed so much to save our lives. If six men were left by Silver, it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship, and since only six were left, it was equally plain that the cabin party had no present need of my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy I slipped over the side and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the bow oar, saying, Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down. But Silver, from the other boat, looked sharply over and called out to know if that were me. And from that moment, I began to regret what I had done. The crews raced for the beach, but the boat I was in, having some start in being at once the lighter and the better manned, shot far ahead of her consort, and the bow had struck among the shoreside trees, and I had caught a branch and swung myself out, and plunged into the nearest thicket, while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards behind. "'Jim! Jim!' I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping, ducking, and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose, till I could run no longer. Chapter 14 The First Blow Was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest on the strange land that I was in. I had crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and odd outlandish swampy trees, and I had now come out upon the skirts of an open piece of undulating sandy country about a mile long, dotted with a few pines and a great number of contorted trees, not unlike the oak in growth, but pale in the foliage, like willows. On the far side of the open stood one of the hills with two quaint, craggy peaks shining vividly in the sun. I now felt for the first time the joy of exploration. The isle was uninhabited. My shipmates I had left behind, and nothing lived in front of me but dumb brutes and fowls. I turned hither and thither among the trees. Here and there were flowering plants, unknown to me. Here and there I saw snakes, and one raised his head from the ledge of a rock and hissed at me with a noise not unlike the spinning of a top. Little did I suppose that he was a deadly enemy and that the noise was a famous rattle. Then I came to a long thicket of those oak-like trees, live or evergreen, oaks, I heard afterward they should be called, which grew low along the sand like brambles, the boughs curiously twisted, the foliage compact like thatch. The thicket stretched down from the top of one of the sandy knolls, spreading and growing taller as it went, until it reached the margin of the broad, reedy fen, through which the nearest of the little rivers soaked its way into the anchorage. The marsh was steaming in the strong sun, and the outline of the spyglass mountain trembled through the haze. All at once there began to go a sort of bustle among the bulrushes. A wild duck flew up with a quack, another followed, and soon over the whole surface of the marsh a great cloud of birds hung screaming and circling in the air. I judged at once that some of my shipmates must be drawing near along the borders of the fen. Nor was I deceived, for soon I heard the very distant and low tones of a human voice, which, as I continued to give ear, grew steadily louder and nearer. This put me in a great fear, and I crawled under cover of the nearest live oak and squatted there, hearkening, as silent as a mouse. Another voice answered, 
and then the first voice, which I now recognized to be Silver's, once more took up the story and ran on for a long while in a stream, only now and again interrupted by the other. By the sound they must have been talking earnestly and almost fiercely, but no distinct word came to my hearing. At last the speaker seemed to have paused and perhaps to have sat down, for not only did they cease to draw any nearer, but the birds themselves began to grow more quiet and to settle again to their places in the swamp. And now I began to feel that I was neglecting my business, that since I had been so foolhardy as to come ashore with these desperados, the least I could do was to overhear them at their councils, and that my plain and obvious duty was to draw as close as I could manage under the favorable ambush of the crouching trees. I could tell the direction of the speakers pretty exactly, not only by the sound of their voices, but by the behavior of the few birds that still hung in alarm above the heads of the intruders. Crawling on all fours, I made steadily but slowly towards them, till at last, raising my head to an aperture among the leaves, I could see clear down into a little green dell beside the marsh, and closely set about with trees, where Long John Silver and another of the crew stood face to face in conversation. The sun beat full upon them. Silver had thrown his hat beside him on the ground, and his great smooth blonde face, all shining with heat, was lifted to the other man's in a kind of appeal. Mate, he was saying, it's because I thinks gold dust of you, gold dust, and you may lay to that. If I haven't took to you like pitch, do you think I'd have been here a warning of you? All's up. You can't make nor mend. It's to save your neck that I'm a-speaking, and if one of the wild uns knew it, where I'd be, Tom? Now tell me, where'd I be? Silver, said the other man, and I observed he was not only red in the face, but spoke as hoarse as a crow, and his voice shook too, like a taut rope. Silver, says he, you're old, and you're honest, and has the name, or has the name for it. You've money too, which lots of poor sailors hasn't. "'and you're brave, or I'm mistook. "'And will you tell me you'll let yourself be led away "'with that kind of a mess of swabs? "'Not you. "'As sure as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand "'if I turn against my duty.' "'And then all of a sudden he was interrupted by a noise. "'I had found one of the honest hands. "'Here, at that same moment, came news of another. "'Far away out in the marsh there arose, all of a sudden, "'a sound like the cry of anger then another on the back of it, and then one horrid, long-drawn scream. The rocks of the spyglass re-echoed it a score of times. The whole troop of marsh birds rose again, darkening heaven, with a simultaneous whirr. And long after that death yell was still ringing in my brain, silence had re-established its empire, and only the rustle of the rescinding birds and the boom of the distant surges disturbed the languor of the afternoon. Tom had leaped at the sound like a horse at the spur, but Silver had not winked an eye. He stood where he was, resting lightly on his crutch, watching his companion like a snake about to spring. John, said the sailor, stretching out his hand. Hands off, cried Silver, leaping back a yard, as it seemed to me, with the speed and security of a trained gymnast. Hands off if you like, John Silver, said the other. It's a black conscience that can make you fear to me. But in heaven's name, tell me, what was that? That? Returned Silver, smiling away, but warier than ever. 
his eye a mere pinpoint in his big face, but gleaming like a crumb of glass. That? I reckon that'll be Alan. And at this point, Tom flashed out like a hero. Alan? he cried. Then rest his soul for a true seaman. And as for you, John Silver, long you've been a mate of mine, but you're mate of mine no more. If I die like a dog, I'll die in my duty. You've killed Alan, haven't you? Kill me too if you can. But I defy you. And with that, this brave fellow turned his back directly on the cook and set off walking for the beach. But he was not destined to go far. With a cry, John seized the branch of a tree, whipped the crutch out of his armpit, and sent that uncouth missile hurtling through the air. It struck poor Tom, point foremost, and with stunning violence, right between the shoulders in the middle of his back. His hands flew up, he gave a sort of gasp, and fell. Whether he were injured much or little, none could ever tell. Like enough to judge from the sound, his back was broken on the spot, but he had no time given him to recover. Silver, agile as a monkey, even without leg or crutch, was on the top of him next moment and had twice buried his knife up to the hilt in Tom's defenseless body. From my place of ambush, I could hear him pant aloud as he struck the blows. I do not know what rightly is to faint, but I do know for the next little while the whole world swam away from before me in a whirling mist, silver in the birds and the tall spyglass hilltop going round and round and topsy-turvy before my eyes, and all manner of bells ringing and distant voices shouting in my ear. When I came again to myself, the monster had pulled himself together, his crutch under his arm, his hat upon his head. Just before him, Tom lay motionless upon the ground, but the murderer minded him not a whit, cleansing his blood-stained knife the while upon a wisp of grass. Everything else was unchanged, the sun still shining mercilessly on the steaming marsh and the tall pinnacle of the mountain. And I could scarce persuade myself that murder had been actually done, and a human life cruelly cut short a moment since before my eyes. But now John put his hand into his pocket, brought out a whistle, and blew upon it several modulated blasts that rang far across the heated air. I could not tell, of course, the meaning of the signal but it instantly awoke my fears. More men would be coming. I might be discovered. They had already slain two of the honest people. After Tom and Alan, might not I come next? Instantly I began to extricate myself and crawl back again with what speed and silence I could manage to the more open portion of the wood. As I did so, I could hear hails coming and going between the old buccaneer and his comrades and this sound of danger lent me wings. As soon as I was clear of the thicket, I ran as I'd never run before. Scarce minding the direction of my flight, so long as it led me away from the murderers, and as I ran, fear grew and grew upon me, until it turned into a kind of frenzy. Indeed, could anyone be more entirely lost than I? When the gun fired, how should I dare to go down to the boats among those fiends, still smoking from their crime. Would not the first of them who saw me wring my neck like a snipes? Would not my absence itself be an evidence to them of my alarm, and therefore of my fatal knowledge? It was all over, I thought. 
Goodbye to the Hispaniola. Goodbye to the squire, the doctor, and the captain. There was nothing left for me but death by starvation or death by the hands of the mutineers. All this while, as I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice, I had drawn near to the foot of the little hill with the two peaks, and had got into a part of the island where the live oaks grew more widely apart and seemed more like forest trees in their bearing and dimensions. Mingled with these were a few scattered pines, some fifty, some near seventy feet high. The air, too, smelt more freshly here than down beside the marsh. And here a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart. Chapter 15 The Man of the Island On the side of the hill, which was here steep and stony, a spout of gravel was dislodged and fell rattling and bounding through the trees. My eyes turned instinctively in that direction, and I saw a figure leap with great rapidity behind the trunk of a pine. What it was, whether bear or man or monkey, I could in no wise tell. It seemed dark and shaggy, more I knew not. But the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. It was now, it seemed, cut off upon both sides. Behind me the murderers, before me this lurking nondescript. And immediately I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. Silver himself appeared less terrible in contrast with this creature of the woods. And I turned on my heel, and looking sharply behind me over my shoulder, began to retrace my steps in the direction of the boats. Instantly the figure reappeared, and making a wide circuit, began to head me off. I was tired, at any rate, but had I been as fresh as when I rose, I could see it was in vain for me to contend in speed with such an adversary. From trunk to trunk the creature flitted like a deer, running manlike on two legs, but unlike any man that I had ever seen, stooping almost double as it ran. Yet a man it was, I could no longer be in doubt about that. I began to recall what I had heard of cannibals. I was within an ace of calling for help, but the mere fact that he was a man, however wild, had somewhat reassured me, and my fear of silver began to revive in proportion. I stood still, therefore, and cast about for some method of escape. And as I was so thinking, the recollection of my pistol flashed into my mind. As soon as I remembered I was not defenseless, courage glowed again in my heart, and I set my face resolutely for this man of the island, and walked briskly towards him. He was concealed by this time behind another tree trunk, but he must have been watching me closely, for as soon as I began to move in his direction, he reappeared and took a step to meet me. Then he hesitated, drew back, came forward again, and at last, to my wonder and confusion, threw himself on his knees and held out his clasped hands in supplication. At that, I once more stopped. Who are you? I asked. Ben Gunn, he answered, and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward, like a rusty lock. I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am, and I haven't spoke with a Christian these three years. I could now see that he was a white man like myself, and that his features were even pleasing. His skin, wherever it was exposed, was burnt by the sun. Even his lips were black, and his fair eyes looked quite startling in so dark a face. Of all the bigger men that I had seen or fancied, he was the chief for raggedness. He was clothed with tatters of old ship's canvas 
and old sea cloth, and this extraordinary patchwork was all held together by a system of the most various and incongruous fastenings, brass buttons, bits of stick, and loops of terrygaskin. About his waist he wore an old brass-buckled leather belt, which was the one thing solid in his whole accoutrement. Three years! I cried. Were you shipwrecked? Nay, mate, said he. Marooned. I had heard the word, and I knew it stood for a horrible kind of punishment common enough among the buccaneers, in which the offender is put ashore with little powder and shot, and left behind on some desolate and distant island. Marooned three years agone, he continued, and lived on goats since then, and berries, oysters. Wherever a man is, says I, a man can do for himself. But, mate, my heart is sore for Christian diet. You mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now, no? Well, many's the long night I've dreamed of cheese, toasted mostly, and woke up again. And here I were. If ever I can get aboard again, said I, you shall have cheese by the stone. All this time he'd been feeling the stuff of my jacket, smoothing my hands, looking at my boots, and generally, in the intervals of his speech, showing a childish pleasure in the presence of a fellow creature. But at my last words, he perked up into a kind of startled slyness. If ever you can get aboard again, says you, he repeated. Why now? Who's to hinder you? Not you, I know, was my reply. And right you was, he cried. Now you, what do you call yourself, mate? Jim, I told him. Jim, Jim, says he, quite pleased, apparently. Well now, Jim, I've lived that rough as you'd be ashamed to hear of. Now, for instance, you wouldn't think I'd had a pious mother to look at me, he asked. Why, no, not in particular, I answered. Ah, well, said he, but I had remarkable pious, and I was a civil pious boy and could rattle off my catechism that fast, and you couldn't tell one word from another. And here's what it come to, Jim. It begun with a chuck farthing on the blessed gravestones. That's what it begun with. But it went further than that. And so my mother told me, and predicted the whole she did, the pious woman. But it were providence that put me here. I've thought it all out here on this lonely island, and I'm back on piety. You don't catch me tasting rum so much, but just a thimbleful for luck, of course. The first chance I have. I'm bound I'll be good, and I see the way, too. And Jim, looking all around him and lowering his voice to a whisper, I'm rich. I now felt sure that the poor fellow had gone crazy in his solitude, and I suppose I must have shown the feeling in my face, for he repeated the statement hotly. Rich, I says, and I'll tell you what, I'll make a man of you, Jim. Ah, Jim, you'll bless your stars, you will. You was the first that found me. And at this there came suddenly a lowering shadow over his face, and he tightened his grasp upon my hand and raised a forefinger threateningly before my eyes. Now, Jim, you tell me true. That ain't Flint's ship? he asked, 
At this I had a happy inspiration. I began to believe that I'd found an ally, and I answered him at once. It's not Flint's ship, and Flint is dead. But I'll tell you true, as you ask me. There are some of Flint's hands aboard. Worst luck for the rest of us. Not a man with one leg? He gasped. Silver? I asked. Ah, Silver, says he. That were his name. He's the cook, and the ringleader, too. He was still holding me by the wrist, and at that he gave it quite a ring. If you was sent by Long John, he said, I'm as good as pork, and I know it. But where was you, do you suppose? I'd made my mind up in a moment, and by way of answer told him the whole story of our voyage and the predicament in which we found ourselves. He heard me with the keenest interest, and when I had done, he patted me on the head. You're a good lad, Jim, he said, and you're all in a clove hitch, ain't you? Well, you just put your trust in Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn's the man to do it. Would you think it likely now that your squire would prove a liberal-minded one in case of help? Him being in a clove hitch, as you remark? I told him the squire was the most liberal of men. Aye, but you see, returned Ben Gunn, I didn't mean giving me a gate to keep and a suit of livery clothes and such. That's not my mark, Jim. What I mean is, would he be likely to come down to the tune of, say, one thousand pounds out of money that's as good as a man's own already? I am sure he would, said I, as it was. All hands were to share. And a passage home? He added with a look of great shrewdness. Why, I cried, the squire's a gentleman, and besides, if we get rid of the others, we should want you to help work with the vessel home. Ah, said he, and so you would. And he seemed very much relieved. Now I'll tell you what, he went on, so much I'll tell you, and no more. I were in Flint's ship when he buried the treasure. He and six along, six strong seamen. They was ashore nigh on a week, and us standing off and on in the little old walrus. One fine day, up with the signal. And here come Flint by himself in a little boat, and his head done up in a blue scarf. The sun was getting up, and mortal white he looked about the cutwater. But there he was, you mind, and the six, all dead. "'Dead and buried. "'How he done it? "'Not a man aboard us could make out. "'It was battle, murder, and sudden death. "'Leastways, him against six. "'Billy Bones was the mate. "'Long John, he was quartermaster, "'and they asked him where the treasure was. "'Ah,' says he, "'you can go ashore if you like, and stay,' he says. "'But as for the ship, "'she'll beat up for more, by thunder.' And that's what he said. Well, I was in another ship three years back, and we sighted this island. Boys, said I, here's Flint's treasure. Let's land and find it. The captain was displeased at that, but my messmates were all of the mind and landed. Twelve days they looked for it, and every day they had the worst word for me, till one fine morning all hands went aboard. As for you, Benjamin Gunn, says they. Here's a musket, they says, and a spade, 
and a pickaxe. You can stay here and find Flint's money for yourself, they says. Well, Jim, three years I've been here, and not a bite of Christian diet from that day to this. But now you look here. Look at me. Do I look like a man before the mast? No, says you. Nor I weren't either, I says. And with that, he winked and pinched me hard. Just you mention them words to your squire, Jim. He went on. Nor he weren't, neither. That's the words. Three years he were the man of this island. Light and dark, fair and rain, and sometimes he would maybe think upon a prayer, says you. And sometimes he would maybe think of his old mother. So be as she's alive, you'll say. But the most part of Gunn's time, and this is what you'll say, the most part of his time was took up with another matter. And then you'll give him a nip, like I do. And he pinched me again, in the most confidential manner. Then, he continued, then you'll up, and you'll say this. Gunn is a good man, you'll say. And he puts a precious sight more confidence, a precious sight, mind that, in a gentleman born than these gentlemen of fortune, having been one himself. Well, I said, I don't understand one word that you've been saying, but that's neither here nor there. For how am I to get on board? Ah, said he, that's the hitch, for sure. Well, there's my boat that I made with my two hands. I keep her under the white rock. If the worst come to the worst... We might try that after dark. Huh? He broke out. What's that? For just then, although the sun had still an hour or two to run, all the echoes of the island awoke and bellowed to the thunder of a cannon. They've begun to fight, I cried. Follow me. And I began to run towards the anchorage, my terrors all forgotten, while close at my side the marooned man in his goatskins trotted easily and lightly. Left, left, says he. Keep your left hand, mate, Jim. Under the trees with you. There's where I killed my first goat. They don't come down here now. They're all mastheaded on them mountains for the fear of Benjamin Gunn. Ah, and there's the cemetery. Cemetery, he must have met. You see the mounds? I come here and prayed nows and thens when I thought maybe a Sunday would be about due. It weren't quite a chapel, but it seemed more solemn-like. And then, says you, Ben Gunn was short-handed. No chaplain, nor so much as a Bible and a flag, you says. And so he kept talking as I ran, neither expecting nor receiving any answer. The cannon shot was followed after by a considerable interval by a volley of small arms. Another pause? And then, not a quarter of a mile in front of me, I beheld the Union Jack flutter in the air above a wood. Stay tuned next week for more of the story, Treasure Island, by Robert Louis Stevenson.